Pleading the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is the third part of the series called The Church as Last Eve, Proving Jesus Came to Redeem a Bride. I'm going through the, the five passages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25 that describe the creation of the first Eve through the first Adam in order to prove, if you will, that Jesus came to redeem a bride. And I'm doing this by showing correlating passages of Scripture in the New Testament uh, with, with Jesus uh, and what he said and what he ultimately did on our behalf, offering up his life to us. Uh, but this particular part of verse 23, the second half of verse 23, uh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man, might not seem so obvious uh, to anyone listening to this, uh, what the correlation is with Jesus. Uh, it wasn't for me. When, when I first started this study some 20 years ago, uh, trying to, to find the correlations in order to prove that, that Jesus came to redeem a bride, and, and as a bride, as the church, that, that we are really, just as he, Jesus was the last Adam, that we are, in effect, the last Eve, or might be likened to the last Eve. Uh, but when I came to, to this verse, the second part of this verse, uh, she shall be called woman, um, I, was, I was honestly stumped. I didn't even know how to approach this. How, where, where do you begin with something like this? Um, there's not much revealed to us about uh, the Hebrew word for woman that's used here. Uh, it's been used a total of 780 times in the Old Testament. Uh, 425 have been translated as wife. Uh, 324 times it's translated as, as woman. Uh, 10 times as the, the word one. Uh, five times as married, two times as female, and 14 times uh, are actually miscellaneous. Uh, didn't give us, give me too much to go on just from the, the definition of the word woman. So uh, what, what occurred to me was to, at that time, back when I first started doing the study, was to just do a search in the New Testament for the single word woman and just uh, 
see what turned up. But before I go any further, I uh, just want to add, uh, if you have been following this series and it still seems, uh, the waters still seem to be pretty muddied, uh, there's not a clear picture that has emerged or maybe there is a partial picture uh, that is emerging here. Um, you know, that that's one of, one of my greatest fears, and I, I don't mean that in a terrified kind of way, but, but I've studied this for so long, um, and pieces have kind of been added over the years, and now there's such a clear picture in my own mind for an, a lot of dots being connected, a lot of pieces of the puzzle uh, having come together and, and, and put into place so that there, there's a pretty complete picture in my mind uh, of this and but I can't tell obviously uh, how anyone else is is struck by any of this whether it's making any sense at all whether it's some of it's kind of clear uh, or if it is just so foreign a concept uh, that it's just you know, you're feeling lost. You know, I, I hope and pray that's not the case. But it, it is certainly an ongoing struggle for me as I try and present this in a podcast. And um, obviously, I can't answer questions. Uh, there is no exchange with anyone else. It's just me sitting here at my computer uh, with a microphone and... Um, the recording software. So I, I hope that you will bear with me. And by the end of this series, um, it, it will make sense. It, it will be clear enough that over time, uh, as you uh, began to, to study areas having to do with this, it, things will begin to stand out and go, oh, that that makes sense why he said that or did that or, or I, that kind of fills this this mystery in or begins to fill that in. Going back to our study, uh, looking at the word woman in the context of the New Testament and specifically with Jesus as a correlation with uh, the creation of the first Eve through Adam. Uh, when I did this search in the New Testament for the word woman, uh, what what immediately stood out for me was uh, the fact that Jesus, with his own mother, Mary, never calls her mother. He instead always refers to her as, as woman. Now, I, I've heard that explained away over the years, that that, that was a way of addressing a woman, kind of like calling a woman today Mrs. or Miss. Um, but this is his mother. Why is he calling his mother Miss or Mrs.? Why, why is, and, and maybe, okay, it, I, I'm willing to accept the fact that I don't understand this from, from a cultural point of view, you know, what was going on at that time and why it was perfectly okay to address Mary as 
not as mother, but as woman. Uh, and um, there aren't lots of instances uh, when he does this. In fact, there are only two instances when he does address her as woman, and both of them are extremely significant to what Jesus came to do and who Mary represents in both of these instances. Uh, the, difficult, the difficulty for us is that um, historically um, there's kind of two views of Mary. Yes, you know, we, we do look at her as the mother of Jesus, that, that she was a virgin, um, and that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But beyond that, Mary has historically been either uh, deified or nullified. Uh, and there's not a lot in between for the ways that, that we need to regard Mary uh, beyond uh, those two things. Uh, that, okay, we bring her up at Christmas time, the Christmas story, uh, going to Bethlehem, no room at the end, um, Jesus is born, and then we just don't think that much about Mary anymore. Or... Um, she, she has almost a deity status. But Mary is so much more than that. And um, the fact that Jesus calls her woman gives us incredible insight to this fact. The word for um, woman in the New Testament, in the Greek is a woman of any age, whether a virgin or married or a widow, uh, a wife of a betrothed woman. And of the 215 instances where this Greek word has been used in the New Testament, 129 of them have been translated as the word women or, or woman, and 92 times as the word wife. The, the root word, it's a verb that, that this word for woman, gane, comes from, is also really interesting because it means to, to become, to come into existence. To arise, appear in history, come upon the stage of men, appearing in public, to be made, finished. Now, if we only think about Mary as the mother of Jesus uh, in that role, giving birth to Jesus, and its significance, and of course it's highly significant because if Mary uh, had not been a virgin if Jesus had not been conceived by the Holy Spirit, if he had not been uh, born without sin, uh, with the inherited sin from the first Adam, then there wouldn't be any point to this discussion in the first place. But Mary is 
more than Jesus' mother. Mary uh, is a virgin bride. Uh, she becomes Jesus' mother uh, when Jesus is conceived in her through the Holy Spirit. But then she becomes a wife to Joseph. She has more children, uh, Jesus' siblings. So she becomes a mother to them. And then we believe that uh, towards the end of her life, at least during Jesus, what's recorded about Jesus' ministry, uh, that Joseph had died and that Mary uh, was a widow. So um, the fact that she's a widow, but also the fact that, that she has been a mother to her, her own children uh, that she had with her husband Joseph, uh, that she became a wife, she was a wife, and that she was a widow, um, to try and keep all of this in mind, uh, even being uh, a virgin, uh, a virgin bride, before she and, and Joseph were officially married, to, to keep all of this in mind as we look at these, these two instances uh, where Jesus addresses his mother as a woman. The first one is in, they're actually both in the Gospel of John, which makes a lot of sense, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Jesus responds, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Uh, whereas in this first instance, when Jesus addresses his mother as woman, uh, takes place really at the very beginning of his, his ministry, uh, and in, is thought of as the, the first miracle that Jesus performs, at least as the first recorded miracle that, that Jesus performs. And I don't think it's... Uh, any coincidence that the next instance uh, in which uh, Scripture, John, in the, the Gospel of John, um, records that Jesus again addresses his mother 
as woman is at the very end of his ministry, right before uh, he dies. In fact, it is the very uh, last thing he does, his last act on, on the cross, at least according to the, the Gospel of John. Uh, it's found in John nineteen twenty six, When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Wow, what a, what a contrast between uh, Jesus um, turning the water into wine and then him at the end of his life after he makes provision for his widowed mother uh, and he says, I thirst. And, and of course, this was discussed in the, in the last uh, episode on bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Um, but that he has, he's given this, this sour wine uh, to drink to try and quench his thirst, which wasn't what he wanted to quench uh, in the first place. It wasn't physical thirst, as has been discussed. Uh, but to drink the cup that he came to drink through the offering up of his own life and to fulfill God's promise uh, to send a Savior, a Messiah, that would deliver, redeem, and restore us uh, and to be our husband, our faithful husband and bridegroom. Now, I know, and this this may be you know, part of our con confusion, when it, it talks about uh, Mary in Scripture and the birth of Jesus. Um, whatever uh, author is is writing the account uh, in in the four Gospels, um, Mary is always always identified as Jesus's mother. In Matthew one eighteen, Matthew records this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And that, that's just one instance, but, but it's a great one because it's right at, at the beginning of uh, the Gospel of Matthew account of the birth of Jesus. And um, in, in many instances, uh, Mary is always uh, spoken of as Jesus' mother. And, and I think that presents some confusion for us and not being able to see her in in the other roles uh, that that she became throughout her life be, or the conditions uh, she became throughout her life but there there's one one instance in in again in Matthew um, that I think is um, really important to this discussion because it is a time when um, 
Jesus has the perfect opportunity to acknowledge Mary as mother and to even uh, address her in that way. Uh, but it's chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, told Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I mean, it could not be made more clear for us when we could just read these other two examples uh, when Jesus addresses his his mother as woman uh, and think, well, okay, that's just addressing her in a way that was culturally appropriate. Uh, but But here, when you add to this, this instance in Matthew chapter 12, uh, where his mother does come uh, to be with him, uh, to speak with him along with his brothers, and he has the opportunity to identify her as his mother, to claim her uh, as his mother. He intentionally sidesteps that because Jesus is both man and God. And even though Mary serves as his his mother, uh, the vessel that that God uh, used for his birth. And this is where it really gets hard for us to get our minds around. Mary, just like all of us, uh, are in need of a savior because we have been born sinful. Uh, Mary is no exception. But it's really hard for us to get our minds around the fact that Mary is just as much in need of a Savior as all of us, that she is just as much a part of the church as all of us, and that she is just as much a bride to Jesus, in her relationship to Jesus, after he offers up his life, defeats death, uh, is raised from the dead, and then ascends into heaven, uh, she becomes his bride, just like all of us. And, you know, that's, that is so hard for me to get my mind around, but, but I know it's true. And, and, but, if, if we don't realize that, if we don't embrace, understand it, accept it, then we really don't understand what is going on in these two instances when Jesus addresses his mother as woman. And we certainly have no chance of being able to, to see this as a correlation with the creation of Eve through Adam and his calling her woman 
uh, with Jesus and what he came to do. Before digging deeper into uh, these two passages where uh, Jesus addresses his mother as woman uh, and uh, the significance that we need to attach uh, to this, uh, there's one more uh, factor that I think is uh, uh, a crucially important factor uh, for us to to look at and and to understand, and it's one that, um, for some reason, never is brought out. Uh, and in my mind, I kind of uh, believe it it has hindered us in our being able to see. Mary in other roles uh, than being uh, Jesus's mother, um, seeing her as as bride, as widow, uh, even as um, virgin. And and what what is this factor that I'm talking about? Well, it let me let me just kind of tell you what led me uh, to even look for this. Um, I was in church one Sunday, and this was quite a number of years ago. Um, it was around the time that I was doing this study, uh, making these um, correlations between the creation of Eve through Adam and Jesus coming to redeem a bride. Uh, it was, again, it was one Sunday uh, in church. Uh, we were reciting the Apostles' Creed, which I had done I don't know how many times uh, before that. And, you know, when you recite something like that again and again for throughout your lifetime, it, it kind of becomes rote, and we tend to say it without even necessarily thinking about the words. But for some reason, on that, that particular Sunday, uh, we got to the part where it says, uh, talking about Jesus, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And I just, it just struck me. Uh, it struck me so profoundly in that moment that I didn't even recite the rest of it. I was still trying to get my head around what I just said, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, this, this probably, you've probably all uh, recited this probably more times than I have. And uh, maybe, you know, you're thinking, well, so what? What's the big deal? Well, what the big deal for me uh, was, uh, what hit me about this is the simple fact that conception is something that we identify with women. We don't identify men or associate conception with men. And we always refer to the Holy Spirit as He. Uh, and, you know, we'll often hear uh, that uh, in Jesus' conception that uh, really kind of coming from the point of view, perspective that the Holy Spirit uh, fathers Jesus. But, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit is not a father thing. It is not a male thing. And, 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 but this is not, I'm not trying to make the case for whether the Holy Spirit is 
feminine or masculine. Uh, you know, the Bible and the way that uh, it has been interpreted in terms of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's always in the masculine. So I, I'm not going to make that argument. But I am going to say that conception is associated with women, with uh, being feminine. Now, having said that, it brought to mind, you know, as I began to, to think about this, uh, if, if the Holy Spirit uh, conceived Jesus, does that mean that God the Father was involved in his conception as well? Since I'd never heard anything along these lines, nothing, nothing talked, this, this idea never presented, um, I set out to, to try and find this out for myself. Uh, this, this actually predated having the internet, uh, so I couldn't even do a, an online search uh, for this. So I just began to, to read the, the accounts, uh, the gospel accounts that, that talk about uh, the conception of Jesus. And so I want to share those accounts with you uh, right now. First, I want to uh, read the passages. Uh, one is in Matthew, the Matthew account uh, of Jesus and his conception and birth, and then I want to read uh, from Luke. They're both in the first chapter of each of these Gospels. Uh, the first one is Matthew one twenty. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's pretty straightforward. Just talks about Mary and uh, the son she will carry has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. But we, we get more information uh, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, beginning with um, in chapter 1 with verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, or in parentheses, become one with you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I'm going to repeat that. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You know, I don't, I'm not sure uh, why 
we've never made this connection. I, I'm sure there are some folks who have, but um, we don't really uh, talk and, and teach on this, and it's probably because we're really not trying to understand uh, Mary and uh, all the many roles and the significance that we should attach to those those roles, those circumstances, those conditions um, that she was in throughout her life. And we, we certainly are not uh, generally trying to, to prove a case that, that Jesus came to redeem a bride, but but in that we are, this this is um, really significantly in, an important factor. Uh, we say that um, Jesus is the son of the, the Most High, God, the Son of God. Jesus himself said he was the Son of God. Uh, nowhere does it ever say that, that, uh, that Jesus was the, the Son of the Holy Spirit. Um, this word for the Most High, overshadowing uh, Mary and the Holy Spirit at the point of conception. Uh, the Most High, uh, that word always is referring to God the Father, the Most High God, always. The Greek word for, that's translated as the word overshadowed, uh, is actually only used five times in the New Testament. Uh, but several of them are, are really um, quite revealing. One of them's in, in Matthew 17, 5. While he was speaking, uh, talking about Jesus, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Two other times when it's used uh, is in this same account, uh, but in the Gospel of Luke and Mark. And then the fifth time, uh, with the first being when uh, it says God overshadows Mary and the Holy Spirit, who have become one. Uh, the final time is in Acts 5.15. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. The definition of this word, overshadow, is uh, to envelop in a haze of brilliancy, figuratively to invest with preternatural influence overshadow. You know, if we just think about God the Father overshadowing uh, Mary and the Holy Spirit at the point of conception uh, of Jesus, you know, it that gives us kind of one image. But then when we look at, at the accounts uh, in three of the Gospels where Jesus and uh, some of his disciples are completely enveloped in a cloud that gives us a completely different understanding and, and, and image in our minds of what, what actually takes place uh, when Jesus is conceived, when God the Father overshadows, completely envelops 
Mary and the Holy Spirit who were one at that point uh, in the conception of Jesus. And it even gives us a different picture of, of Peter as he's walking down the street and people are bringing out their sick and laying them on mats and pallets so that even his uh, wanting just his shadow to pass over them. Uh, you know, what? at least for me, the, the image that that gives to me in my mind is that that Peter is so profoundly filled with, with God's Spirit and, and his presence so surrounds him. It, it is like this, this cloud coming off of him that even uh, that it's that cloud that, that is the shadow that is passing over uh, those who are sick and, and waiting there, hoping that his shadow will pass across them and they will be healed. Something else that, that is so uh, profoundly significant um, about the fact that, that both God the Father and the Holy Spirit are... Uh, there at the conception of Jesus, that, that, that Mary is completely enveloped in this cloud uh, uh, that is God the Father, the Most High God, and she is one with the Holy Spirit. Remember back uh, in the first episode when we were talking about after God removes the rib uh, and then he closes up the place in Adam's side with flesh, uh, and, and the root word uh, that that this Hebrew word for flesh is derived from uh, means to gladden with good news, to bear good news, to announce salvation as good news, preach and to receive good news. Uh, you probably know where I'm I'm going with this, uh, and it's exactly where I'm going. That 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 salvation. Um, evangelism, if you will, the, the spread of the good news of God's glory uh, was to happen through childbirth, uh, through, through Eve. Uh, and here it is, Mary, uh, an Eve-like figure, if you will, um, giving birth to Jesus, the good news of salvation. Um, salvation uh, the spread of salvation uh, now can occur uh, because of Mary's obedience, her willingness uh, to to serve as as the host, the the vessel for to bring to bring this salvation into the world, the fulfillment of God's promise to Adam and Eve. All right, the Gospel of John, chapter two. Verse 1, and remember, we are going to look at Mary, yes, you know, just given she is the mother of Jesus, but, but who else does she represent, does she symbolize to us, especially in proving this case uh, that Jesus came to redeem a bride, uh, the church, um, who is uh, essentially the last Eve. Verse 1, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. 
When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Keep in mind uh, the definition of woman. A woman of any age, whether a virgin or married or a widow, of a betrothed woman. First of all, I think we can eliminate married. Uh, we are fairly certain. Uh, I think most people agree that uh, Mary is a widow uh, at this point, even though Scripture does not really tell us one way or another. So we'll throw out uh, her being married. Uh, she is a widow. Uh, we, we are pretty well, I'm pretty well convinced that, that she is a widow at this point. Mary can also um, potentially uh, be a bride again. I mean, she, she can remarry. That's still in the realm of possibility. Uh, but, but who does she represent uh, here uh, in, in this, at this time and place and uh, the context of what's going on and what uh, this, this event symbolizes, uh, which is so much more than the fact that Jesus turns uh, water into wine. I mean, that for those who were, were there attending this feast, you know, that, that's the wow factor for them. Uh, that is, uh, especially for his disciples, needing to um, see more and more clearly who Jesus is, who it is they're following, uh, that he is the promised Messiah, and uh, these uh, miracles, signs, and wonders that, that he will perform throughout his ministry are uh, affirmation uh, for that. They are confirmation uh, of that. So... Um, but just, just cutting through uh, to the significance uh, of the fact that this is taking place at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, very, recorded very early on uh, in John's account of Jesus and his ministry, his life, uh, his death, his resurrection. It's a wedding. It is a foreshadowing of what will take place 
at the end of this age. What, what's spoken of in Revelation about the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem descending uh, from heaven, this, this um, setting not unlike a garden, the Garden of Eden, uh, that will be without sin. It, it is paradise. And this is a foreshadowing, and so everything in it has significance, has meaning. No, nothing has been recorded here that is not significant to Jesus, to what he came to do, and ultimately who we are in our relationship to him as bride, and that we are looking ahead to the wedding feast, the marriage of the Lamb. Okay, on the third day, a wedding took place. You know, I mean, to me, that just, uh, there couldn't be a wedding. We could not be wed to Jesus. We could not be restored with Jesus and if he had not offered up his life, um, defeated death, been resurrected on the third day, and then ascended into heaven. So, you know, you... you that's unmistakable. Jesus is also there with his disciples, and uh, you know, symbolically, uh, they they are really uh, groomsmen. His groomsmen. They they are there with him. And Mary. Uh, this is what is so hard to get our minds around because of her being his mother. Uh, but but Mary, as I think we have proved, she was a vessel that God used, a, a, a chosen vessel because of her obedience, because of her purity, because uh, she was uh, a virgin. Uh, she is chosen, uh, but she is a vessel. She is a host for Jesus to be born through. Uh, so if we understand that, we, we accept that, we, we really believe that, then we can go to the next step and say Mary is as much in need of a Savior as all of us. Mary has to come to Jesus, uh, to our Heavenly Father through Jesus. Mary uh, is part of the church. Mary is equally a bride as all of us are. And that just is hard to take in, that Jesus uh, is essentially the God of his own parents, uh, which includes Mary. So, but if we can see her in this way, if we can see her representing um, the bride, the church that Jesus came to redeem, if we can see her uh, in terms of being a virgin bride, which she was, um, that she symbolizes... Um, that pure as a virgin bride that God desires for us to be, that, that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 through 4. Um, that's what she represents. And 
you know, one of the, the first things that, that comes up in this is that the wine is all gone. I've been to a Jewish wedding before, and at least the one I went to, uh, both the wedding as well as the reception that followed, it was a big celebration, and, and wine flowed freely. It was a big part of the celebration, and it has run out. I mean, can you imagine that? Not having enough wine to, to carry all the way through to the end of, of the celebration. But, you know, the wine has, has run out here uh, in a literal way, but um, the wine, in a sense, uh, in terms of Israel and her condition that Jesus finds her in when he comes and begins his ministry, uh, they are out of wine. And that's when Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And it is because he says that, calls her woman, but then says my hour has not yet come, that we realize he is talking about the condition of Israel and presenting going forward what he has come to do. And a big part of what gives that away for us is the fact that we know in Matthew 26, 45, Jesus speaks of the hour that hasn't come as having come now. He's, he's in the garden. This is after the the Passover feast with his disciples when he says, my lips will not touch from the, the fruit of the, this vine until I'm with you in the kingdom of God. Uh, he has been praying. Uh, it's when he confronts his disciples and says, please come watch and pray with me. Stop sleeping lest you fall into temptation. And in, in one of those appeals, when he's actually praying, he says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he comes back and he finds the disciples sleeping. Uh, so he, he goes away and once more he, he prays for a third time saying the, the same thing. Uh, and that third time, you know, that, that's significant and you can draw your own conclusions about that. Then he returns to the disciples and says to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Then, just as Jesus expressed uh, on many different occasions, especially when he was in the garden asking for the cup uh, to be removed, uh, acknowledging quickly that he was... He came to fulfill his father's will and, and not his own. So here um, we, we have Mary being addressed as woman by Jesus, uh, reminding her uh, that, that his hour has not come yet, uh, but it's, it's coming. Uh, and then his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, obey him. Be obedient. So Jesus 
in this instance, is completely fulfilling his Father's will. None of this that's taking place uh, is he doing on his own. And, and there we see, see Mary uh, figuratively, uh, us, the church, uh, the future bride of Jesus, um, carrying out uh, what he has expressed as his will. And it says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, what on earth can we take away from this? The first thing that, that uh, we should notice is that these, these clay or stone water jars, uh, vessels uh, that are empty, um, that they, they were meant to hold water that was used for uh, ceremonial cleansing, uh, bathing essentially. Um, you remember when Jesus is on the cross and just about to die and he says, I thirst. Remember what was said about um, the hyssop branches, the hyssop stalk uh, that was used with a sponge on it. Uh, to to dip that sponge in the spoiled wine, the, the vinegar, in order to give him a drink. And the, the hyssop branch um, was used for a ceremonial cleaning by um, the priest with water and sometimes blood sprink, uh, to sprinkle it over um, things that needed to be cleansed. Uh, was used... Um, the night of, of the Passover, the angel of death passing over and, and uh, hyssop branches were dipped in blood and then the blood was painted over the doorways of the Jewish homes. Well, these, these clay jars, I mean, they, they really uh, represent us uh, or, you know, in that moment, Israel. Um, and the fact that there are six of them, and 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 the number six, uh, I'm not going to get all you know into extreme attachments to numbers, but but numbers are significant in scripture, and I know there's two kind of schools of thought about that, but but it's it's a pretty commonly held belief that the number six is uh, is is the number of man, one less than perfection. Um, God creates man on the, the sixth day. I mean, there, there are many different attachments to this. And if, if we look at those jars uh, figuratively um, representing the condition of Israel, uh, the condition of the church that, that, that Jesus comes to, to redeem, the bride that, that he comes for, uh, that just makes perfect sense. And, and even the other two numbers... Uh, the number 20, as well as uh, the number 30, that they held 20 to 30 gallons. The number 20 uh, has come, you know, from, from some positions, scholarly positions, to uh, kind of signify uh, expectancy. Uh, for instance, uh, Jacob in Genesis 38 uh, 41, Jacob waited to get possession of his wives and property uh, for 20 years. Uh, Israel waited for deliverance through Samson. 
uh, in Judges, uh, 20 years. Solomon was waiting for the completion of the two houses for 20 years. Jerusalem waited between its capture and destruction for 20 years. And the number 30, it um, is said to uh, denote or mark uh, the right moment. Uh, for instance, uh, Christ begins his ministry at age 30. Um, at age 30 uh, was when a Levite uh, became a priest and couldn't become a priest uh, before that time. So, uh, and we know that uh, this account is at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and we know that his ministry began at age 30. So, um, you know, apart, I mean, these numbers all by themselves really are no big deal, but, but in, in looking at this account uh, in a, an expanded view of it, uh, especially in the context uh, for trying to prove that Jesus came to redeem a bride, uh, it then takes on uh, far greater significance. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. The master tastes the water, and, and the water has turned in, into wine. Uh, but, but it is the finest choices wine. So when we look at these, these stone water jars, if, if you, you buy it, that uh, they, they symbolize us, man, symbolize Israel. Uh, symbolize a system that could only cleanse uh, from the outside, on the outside, uh, and anything uh, that had to do with outward appearance, and that Jesus came to offer up his life so that we could be uh, cleansed from the inside out. Uh, they filled these vessels up to the very brim, uh, that's what, what Jesus does for us uh, when we accept his proposal of marriage. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We, every nook and cranny of our being uh, is, is filled with his spirit. Uh, and, you know, this is such a foreshadowing of, of, you know, Jesus comes to turn us who we are made up Almost most of our our physical bodies is made up of water, and Jesus comes to to purify us and, and turn us into the the finest choices wine. Uh, but it's also you know he he says to these servants, uh, draw some out and take it to the master. You know it's not the same Greek word that's used here. Uh, but in um, John 12, chapter 12, uh, verse 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Uh, it's, it's the same idea of what, what Jesus has, has come to do. And, and we then, as his servants, as his bride, as his church, God will use us 
to draw others to him through us because he abides in us his holy we're sealed in the holy spirit and we we are his bride at the second occasion or instance when jesus addresses his his mother as woman and again there are only two instances when he does this and he he never addresses her actually addresses her as mom um, it's in John, the Gospel of John, uh, beginning with chapter uh, 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, of course, John, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Whereas uh, the, the first occasion where Jesus addresses his mom as, as woman uh, is at the beginning of his ministry when he's uh, 30 years old. Uh, and the occasion is, is a wedding celebration. Uh, but it is a foreshadowing of what Jesus has come to do. Um, the hour hasn't come yet, he says to his mother, but we know the hour uh, comes when he uh, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and you know Mary um, being called woman uh, fits perfectly for us uh, e even if it's just symbolically um, in in building this case that that Jesus came to redeem a bride and, and, and the bride I'm speaking of is of course the church but but as the church that that we are, uh, the last eve. Um, and that's what this case is about, is, is proving that fact. So Jesus, uh, and this is the only uh, account of in the four Gospels uh, for Jesus making provision uh, for his uh, widowed mother in this way, um, putting her in the care of, of his disciple, uh, John, the disciple whom he loved. Um, how do we see Mary? You know, again, we want to see her as Jesus's mother, but after all that we've discussed, um, I think I, I think you should be able to see beyond that uh, the the other uh, roles or conditions that that she became throughout her life, and uh, again in at at this these final moments of Jesus's life, um, she, she represents, she is a physical widow, uh, but, but she represents, um, figuratively, symbolically, um, our condition of spiritual widowhood, uh, what Jesus has ultimately come to do by offering up his life and fulfilling the promise to Adam and Eve to deliver, uh, redeem, 
and restore us. And who better to, to symbolize this at the very end of his life to, to, to kind of, if you will, shine this giant, intense spotlight on this moment to say in his final moments of life, uh, again, I am the Messiah. I am uh, the one that my Father in heaven has sent uh, because he loves you uh, to come and take away your fallen condition, your, your condition of spiritual widowhood and, and fatherlessness as well. Uh, by this, this, what I'm doing in these final moments, um, making provision for my widowed mother, placing her in the care of my disciple, John. Um, this is, you know, based on James one twenty seven, pure and undefiled religion before a father is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress. This, this is that. Uh, in First Timothy five, when Paul says, you know, uh, anyone who doesn't take care of his family, and he's he's speaking of family or relatives, which is also to include any widows in the family. Paul says that person, or church for that matter, that doesn't take care of their family is worse than unbelievers and has denied the faith. Jesus, as the eldest, and more importantly, as the Son of God, the responsibility is his, not only for making provision for his widowed mother, but he has come to make provision for all of us as well. You know, when, you know, he, he, he tells his disciples, uh, you know, where I'm going, you can't come, but I will come back for you. Uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. Uh, in, in my father's mansion, there are many rooms. If there weren't, I wouldn't have told you so that there were. Uh, all of this is in keeping with uh, the marriage betrothal process, uh, the traditions with, with the Jewish people, with, with Israel going way back. And even uh, some of these things are, are even observed today in Israel. So when Jesus addresses his mother as woman, Jesus is like the first Adam when he said in Genesis 2, 24, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Jesus is really speaking this to all of us and what he is about to do on our behalf, offering up his life, paying the bride price for us, defeating death, and opening the way back up that has been blocked back into paradise, the promised land, if you will, whereas woman slash Eve was made from man slash Adam, he was from the earth, earthy. We who are earthy are now made or reborn as spiritual beings through Jesus. And this can't be made more clear to us 
that Jesus came to redeem a bride than by Jesus addressing his mother as woman. But now, in addition to all that has been presented for the many roles we should regard Mary for, perhaps the one that remains most important for us is remembering her as virgin bride, betrothed. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.2? For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. He's speaking of the church, the church as bride, both male and female. I know that Jesus is our model for living out our faith in him, but he is our bridegroom, and we, as his bride, need a model for being that bride. Who else could there possibly be who exemplifies for us the model of obedience and submission and as a virgin bride who is chosen by God to be the vessel host for delivering Jesus into this world, bringing salvation, a salvation that will deliver, redeem, and restore us. Who more than Mary, better than Mary, serves as that example for us for what it looks like to be this ongoing, pure, and undefiled bride. Amen. I hope that you will join me for part four in this series of The Church's Last Eve, Proving Jesus Came to Redeem a Bride. Uh, in the next episode in this series, we will be looking at Genesis 2, 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question, is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? And I sincerely welcome your comments. Feel free to leave them on our website, or if you want to send me an email directly, you can send it to andy at widows.org. Until next time. Thank you.